A good morning. <clears throat> it's very difficult, but uh, but good. I appreciate being a part of a church that receives people, but we also know how to send them out. Um, you know, with a with a blessing uh, to be a blessing. So that's it's good. It's just a part of the DNA of our church. We bring people in. We welcome them with open arms. We do what we can to love on them, to care for them. They they give back. It's amazing. And then. And then God sends them out, and that's just the way it is. It's difficult, but it's, uh, it's good. Speaking of difficult, if there were uh, any words that would strike terror in me, my body, my soul as a kid, they were these. Glenn Milton, go to your room and stay there until your father gets home. <laughs> yeah. Now, my dad, my dad loved my siblings and me. And his way of demonstrating that love was by providing for us. But it was more difficult and it was rare for him to show us his love with physical and emotional affection. It wasn't until much later in his life when we, his kids, uh, grew to be more comfortable expressing our own emotions that he would then begin saying back, I love you too. And when I became a Christian, I projected my relationship with my earthly dad onto my relationship with my heavenly father. It's not, it's not unusual. And as a result, it was easier for me to believe that God tolerated me more than he loved me. And he would tolerate me as long as I did what I was supposed to do. But when I messed up, which was quite routinely, all I could hear was a voice from somewhere that said, Glenn Milton, wait till God finds out about this. In Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he recounts the true story of a drug-addicted prostitute with a two-year-old daughter who became so desperate that she confessed to things that she was doing to support her drug habit that made the person she was confessing to legally liable to report her. When she was asked if she had ever thought about going to church for help, she said, church, why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. So I shared these stories with you, my own, and this one from Yancey's book, not because they represent what's true about our Heavenly Father, thank God, or hopefully what's true about churches like ours, thank God, but because they are actually true experiences that have significantly influenced thoughts and, and opinions and feelings about God and about His people. My guess, my guess is that you know people who because of life situations, because of poor parenting perhaps, because of what they've seen or heard from others or any number of other reasons, that they have become confused and have developed a false understanding of God's deep and profound love for them. You think? These people... And, and perhaps you are among them, would benefit from knowing and believing the truth of his love. Even as it's described in Romans 8, I love this passage, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the good news that the woman from Philip Yancey's book needed to hear. It's the truth that I needed to believe as a young Christian, and it's the message that we need to be encouraged with and that we need to share with this world. Today, today we are wrapping up our series called Major Prophet from the Minor Prophets. We launched this season back when it was a little chillier. It was back in early May. And we launched it first with the book of Amos, and then we moved on to Habakkuk, and finally we're in Malachi. And again, we chose these three books from among the collection of 12 Minor Prophets in the Old Testament because they represent three distinct time periods in the history of God's people, roughly a 400-year time period. And we also, and we've said this before, we just discern that God had something he wanted to say to us from these books, that they're relevant to us today uh, as they were back then. Now, you may have noticed that these books have been filled with passages about God's judgment against lots of different people. Anybody pick up on that? There's some judgment in here. There's some angry language. There's like, whoa, what on earth is going on? Some wrath. And, um, and you know, if we're not careful, uh, perhaps our takeaway might be that God God's like this angry tyrant, you know, vengeful kind of a overlord who's ready to execute judgment on anyone um, as soon as they mess up. That could be a takeaway from these books. Like that's the kind of God uh, we serve. I hope, I hope and pray that that's not your takeaway. It is true. Of course, that there are consequences for people who exploit other human beings. Yeah, and there are consequences for those who deny justice to the oppressed. And there are consequences for those who turn a blind eye to the need of their neighbors. This is true. And sometimes judgment is built in naturally. You don't actually even need a special divine judgment of God. It's just built into the way that things work under God's divine orchestration. But sometimes these consequences are actually the direct judgment of God because love, as the Apostle Paul once said, does not delight in evil. It's also true that there will be times when it's easier to understand God's judgment than others. This was likely, I think, as true for Amos and Habakkuk and Malachi as it is for us. But even when we don't understand or like why God does or does not do certain things, I hope that we are really clear about his love. His love for us, 
and his love for others, and that we would respond in obedience with humility to his commands to love him first and foremost. Again, I think this is where things went wrong so terribly, that we would obey with humility his commands to love him first and foremost, and then to show that love to those around us. And we can do this well with our words, but we can do this even better with our actions. And so, as we come to Malachi 4, the final chapter of the book, I invite you once again to lean in, to listen, and to see with fresh eyes that even in God's judgment, there is mercy, there is love. Malachi chapter 4. We'll put it up on the screen, or you can turn to it in a Bible um, that you brought with you, or on your phone, or one in the chair in front of you. Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses and decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else. I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your divine word. God, thank you that it has more relevance to us than anything else that we could search for on Google. Um, God, thank you that your word is as relevant to us even as it was to the original hearers. Um, But God, we need to understand what on earth, how can we interpret this and then live it out? How are we to apply it, God, in our day? And so we're praying, God, that by your spirit, you would bring divine revelation, illuminate, God, your word. And with the degree of clarity that we gain, that we would obey it in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there's a couple of references to, um, to something called a day that we're going to pick up on. We haven't talked about it in this series, uh, but we're going to hit on it here uh, today. It's referred to as a day that is coming. And this special uh, day is mentioned a couple of times in this chapter. Later on, you're going to see uh, later in, in chapter 4, I read it, that great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
So again, this is not the first time that we've come across it. Uh, in fact, in most of the minor prophets, it comes up frequently. This reference to this day or the day of the Lord. Uh, we saw it in Amos. Uh, Amos chapter 5, we read this. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite it. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? That was Amos 5. And then Habakkuk uh, makes a reference to a day. He wrote, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decray crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then again, Malachi. We've already seen the day of the Lord referenced in our study of Malachi in chapter 3, verse 2. It talks about the day of his coming. Um, and then again, the day when I act, and that's uh, verse, three, uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, and then verse 17 of chapter 3. I had a brief conversation with Dane last week about the band called, called Chicago, and I had recently played a Chicago tune in one of the bands that I played in, so some of their songs had been on my mind. So when I was writing this, um, the song, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is, uh, was going through my head. And that's a good question. Does anybody know, really know what time it is? I'm not going to say. And so there are times where I'll ask that question. Geez, what? Especially like in the middle of the night. I wonder what time it is. Geez. But given that these books, these prophetic books, as I said, were written over a 350 to 400 year time span. Uh, my question today is, does anybody really know what day the day of the Lord is? See what I did there? Okay, good, as long as you're tracking. (laughs) All right, so the day of the Lord. It's a great question. What is this day? Is it today? Was it yesterday? Is it next year? What's this day? Has it already passed? Are there multiple days of the Lord? Uh, It's a great question, but I'm not going to answer the question. Um, Instead, I'm going to pass that to our friends at the Bible Project, and we're going to watch this short video, The Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. 
And God knows how devastating this could be, a whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward, and he's swallowed up by death. Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb that's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it, Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus gonna finish off evil? Well, that's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? 
that's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. I appreciate the work that the Bible Project does. Uh, you can YouTube, you can uh, search for that on YouTube. The Day of the Lord, if you want to watch it again, it's packed full of um, important uh, theological principles, actually, and uh, really, really good. So the Day of the Lord, just sort of in summary, uh, it's a reference to a specific time period when God executes judgment against those bent on doing evil and rebellion against him and his commandments. And actually, as uh, we heard, there's been multiple versions of this uh, day of the Lord, days, periods, times of um, judgment against evil. It's also when God exonerates those who are seeking to do right, upholding his justice as they live in humble obedience to his commands. And it's for this reason, perhaps, that, Mal- that uh, Malachi refers to this day as being both great and dreadful. There's multiple ways to think of that, but um, perhaps you could think of it as it's a great day for some. It's a dreadful day for others. Because I hope everyone hearing this message online um, or here today is actually seeking to honor God with both their words and with their actions. Um, I want us to be encouraged by the promise that comes with doing this because doing this is not easy in this world. So I felt like let's be encouraged and this text gives us encouragement. Through Malachi, the prophet God said, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Now, clearly, we've seen this multiple times in these books. You should recognize this. This is prophetic language, not to be taken literally. It's prophetic, uh, poetic. It, it is prophetic language, but poetic language is really what I meant to say. It's poetic language. And it's used to describe the quality of life that God wants to bless us with as we live our lives in obedience to Him and His word. As we reverently walk with God, he will light the way that we are to go. And this light, which is his light, will always lead us in the right direction, on paths of righteousness, if you will, as he heals and restores our souls. Many of us have been on this path of righteousness for a long time, and we've experienced the healing and the restoration of our souls. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, God has been good 
for those of us on this path of righteousness. That, and he is shedding his light as we journey on this path with him. It reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A few weeks ago, um, they're not here this morning, but I asked Lee and Paul what it means when a calf leaps. It's in the text. I'm not around cows very much, so and I don't want to assume. I don't know. They're in pain. They're hungry. I don't know what the issue is. Why do calves leap? I didn't know, so I asked the kids. And they looked at me as if I was an, um, didn't know better, and I don't. So he said, it means that they're happy. Oh, okay, maybe I should have known that. As we remember uh, the proverbial stalls of sin that, that we have been freed from by Christ, it's always right for us to express our gratitude to him and Leaping for joy is certainly appropriate. This reminds me of the lame man, uh, which we're introduced to in Acts chapter 3, who's healed in the name of Jesus. And immediately he begins, he begins walking. But what else does he do? He leaps. Yeah, he's jumping around. He's leaping. And he's praising God. He can't stop it. It's like an uncontrollable uh, spontaneous reaction. And he's just simply worshiping God by walking and leaping. It's awesome. Did you know that singing isn't the only way that we can respond to God's goodness? <laughs> this church, this church used to be filled with leapers, <laughs> jumpers, dancers, movers, and shakers. <laughs> There's a remnant. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I just appreciated the freedom uh, that we all experienced in worship. And I would pray that we would never lose that freedom as we respond to our awesome God. That we would be free to worship the way that our soul is begging us to. And would our bodies respond. And if that means we move a foot or two, that's okay. That's fine here. <clears throat> Joyful jumping, I call it. All right, so um, the, the meaning behind trampling down the wicked, I wish I had an answer for you. I, I, I actually, it's not real clear to me what this means, and that's okay. There's lots of places in Scripture where I, I don't know, uh, and this is one of them. I talked to Beverly about it, and she, of course, had a guess. She always does. Um, she's smart that way. And she said, I, I think it maybe has something to do with disempowering evil with doing right. And, and she might be right about that interpretation. I, I really don't know. But I don't feel like I need to know what actually it means because it's going to happen after God does something, and he hasn't done that yet. So when God does that thing, then I think then we'll know what it means. And I'm cool with that. I don't need to know now. Is that okay? I, so I kind of dodged that one. All right. Um, but I do want us to um, 
uh, not interpret that as we are to go around trampling on people <laughs> right now. Uh, let's wait until the Lord does what he's going to do, and then we'll take our cues from him. Rather, we know that in these days, what he's calling us to is actually to lift people up, right? To lift people up. Um, and this is what we're to do. And we're to do this with the truth and the grace and the mercy and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to do this while it is still day. Yeah. Last week, Aaron pointed out the reference to, to John the Baptist and to Jesus. And it's in the first uh, verse of Malachi chapter 3. You can look at that uh, if you'd like. And it's really remarkable when you stop to think about uh, this that uh, here we are 400 years before the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus and Malachi just by, oh, by the way, you know, this is going to happen. 400 years. It's pretty remarkable. It's really insane. It's God. Um, <clears throat> chapter 4 in Malachi's uh, last words and the final words of God, by the way, that are recorded in the Old Testament, there is a reference again to John the Baptist who would come um, uh, in the spirit, we find out later, in the spirit of Elijah um, uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. Until then, uh, they were instructed, and we saw this in Malachi 4, instructed just to remember with the implied meaning to obey, that's always implied when you remember, remember God's word, it's always implied to obey the law of Moses as an expression of their love for God and in obedience to bless all nations with the knowledge of his love. That was the reason why God had set them apart. So based on the pattern that we've observed for the last 400 years from Amos to Malachi, <clears throat> Based on the pattern that we saw God's people um, in for those 400 years, how well do you think they did for the next 400 years? I see some thumbs down. And sadly, you're right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, by time Jesus comes along, 400 years, uh, this, is, this is how he had to describe, right, the state of Israel in his day. He said, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This was Jesus' assessment of the state of Israel in his time, 400 years after Malachi. Sadly, we know this, the history of the church has often followed the same pattern, right? So we certainly wouldn't want to compare ourselves too favorably. One of the difficulties of preaching through this series, honestly, has not been getting lost in the repeated patterns of disobedience to God and his command, which then led to a period of judgment, which was then followed by a degree of repentance, which then led to a time of relative peace and prosperity, followed by people thinking once again that they no longer needed God. How many times? It's difficult sometimes to keep track of it all. 
it was a pattern. And I'm going to shoot up this uh, image. Um, it's referred to as the cycle uh, of judges. This is a pattern that preceded long before Amos uh, and the other minor prophets. In fact, over 500 years before Amos was written, uh, Israel was in this period called the Judges, the period of the Judges, the time of the Judges. And because they were led by judges, it's before they began to appoint kings. In just the book of Judges, it's recorded at least 17 times when the Israelites went through that cycle that I described. 17 times around the circle in just 350 or so years. 17 times. So as you look at this pattern, my question is, does it look familiar? Well, have you ever seen it before? Have you ever known someone, someone who's recognized their need for God, repented of their sin, enjoyed a time of joy and peace, celebrated their freedom in Christ, only to return to old habits which led them back to bondage of sin? Bondage to sin. Yeah, my guess, my guess is that many of us actually have seen this pattern before in other people's lives, maybe even in our own life. Have you ever been around the circle once or twice? Not me. I've been around the circle far more than twice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I think that if we were honest, if we were an honest community, we would say, yeah, me too. Many of us. Aaron and I believe that there is much to profit from the minor prophets that can help us individually and as a community of Christ followers end this unhealthy pattern. Aaron sees, sees these books, among other things, calling us to these three things, and this is all will would help us to get out of this pattern. First, I think they're gonna, we're going to put them up, maybe, I don't know how we're going to project it, but uh, somehow to, uh, the first is to focus our attention on God's love, his compassion, his goodness, provision, especially as this has been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. We've talked a lot about this, the importance of focusing our lives on God. Um, second, to remember, to remember all the ways that God has worked in us and through us in our lives, including the incredible fulfillments of his promise throughout Scripture. Yeah. So to focus our attention and never to forget God's goodness. This will help us out of this cycle. And then finally, to hold on to hope that's built on faith and trust in the realities of the promises even yet to be fulfilled. All right, so to focus and to remember and to hold on to hope. When we lose sight of God's love for us, it diminishes our capacity to fully love ourselves and others as he intends. We've talked about this. But when it's clear, and when we're clear about God's love for us through Christ, then we become blessed. We are blessed 
with the capacity to forgive and to serve and to love others in ways that are similar to the ways that we see Jesus forgiving and loving and serving. The key to getting away from unhealthy sin patterns is knowing, this sounds so simple, but it's so true. It's just this. It's knowing how much God loves you. That's it. And then responding to that love and growing that love. Jesus simply said it this way. If you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments if you love me. This is not rocket science. It's simple. Some people think of the pattern that we saw as is a, like a pattern of sin or cycles of sin. We look at it as cycles of redemption. Because throughout the history of God's people, no matter how much they rejected God, God never rejected them. And God will never reject us. That's good news. So, as so we begin to wrap up, I'm just going to get super practical for a bit. And then... Um, And then we'll finish up uh, this book. So how do we grow? How do we grow in our love for God? We've talked about this so many times from up front, but I'm going to give another uh, shot at it. This has been very helpful for me recently. So how do we grow in our love for God? So I recently read a book called Atomic Habits. Anybody? Atomic Habits? Bestseller? It's great. Yeah, okay. Um, So great book by James Clear. So in this book... Uh, James used a helpful picture that I'm borrowing, um, but I'm making some modifications to it. But I want to give him credit. Okay, so stick with me. If I gave, Danny, can I pick on you for a moment? Great. He said yes, I think. (laughs) He picks on me, so I can. Okay, so Danny. All right, so if I gave Danny a dollar bill, does that make him rich? I mean, he might be grateful for it, but it won't make him rich. Okay, now, what I have to stick to my notes because I have numbers that are important. Um, what if I gave him $1 every minute? Okay, now we're starting to talk, right? Now, so at the end of one day, he would accumulate, if I did the math right, he would accumulate $1,440. Let me ask you a question, church. Is Danny now rich? Some people are saying, (laughs) okay, all right, some people, yeah, okay, so the best, sorry, Danny, not yet, all right, Um, how about after a week, I'll tell you, he would now have close to $10,000, anybody, is Danny now rich, some college students are saying, yep, (laughs) and some older folks with some discretionary funds are saying, he'd be richer, Getting in the right, moving in the right direction. $10,000 after a week. That's not bad. Okay, now, after a month, and then we'll end this uh, little exercise. Uh, After a month, he would accumulate nearly $50,000. Anybody? Rich? Is Danny now rich? All right, for you who are holding back saying $50,000? Pocket change. Whatever. (laughs) I don't think that's anybody here, but um, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, like, how long do I have to keep doing this until even you would say, okay, now he's rich? A year? Five years? Oh, come on. All right, so once you've answered the question, how long, how many dollars do I need to give him? Once you've answered that question, there's this other question, and this is the more important one. And that's, that's the question, which dollar bill was the one that made him rich? Which one? Anybody else? Well, I think all of them, including, yes, the first one, but certainly all of them, not just the last one, all of them. All right, this image, um, when I read it, it, it had completely different meaning, but it, it connected with me at this level. This image may be able to help you to grow in your love for God. Here's how. If you want to grow your love for God, consider, consider making small Consistent investments in your relationship with God every day. Just small, consistent investments with God every single day. Some people call these spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. I like to call them holy habits. <laughs> I, uh, I'm finishing up a, a book written by Dallas Willard. It's called The Spirit of Disciplines. Great book. He devotes an entire chapter to describing what he calls the disciplines of abstinence and the disciplines of engagement. He, uh, he lists disciplines of abstinence, which are just they're, they're things that you're not doing intentionally. So he, he, uh, he includes uh, the discipline of solitude, getting away, um, silence, not just having silence, um, fasting, um, denying yourself food or whatever. And then there's a whole, there's a whole list. And then he lists some of the disciplines of engagement, and they include service, caring well for other people, being engaged that way, fellowship, doing this, and, and connecting with other people, prayer, there's quite a list. And uh, so I just gave you a couple of examples. And for centuries, for a long, long, long time, Christians throughout the ages have been practicing these kinds of spiritual disciplines. This is not, not a new fad. This is an old thing that uh, brothers and sisters of ours throughout the ages have practiced. Why? To help them to grow deeper in their love for God and for others. This is the reason why. So the goal uh, to living this way isn't to add holy habits into your daily routine all at once. I'm going to read through the Bible tomorrow and then, you know, I'm going to not eat for six months or whatever. No, don't. Um, so, but we, we, we are discerning, we are wisely asking uh, for direction and, and wisdom to choose one and to start with one and then over time to begin introducing others into your daily and your monthly and your yearly routine. This is the idea that Dallas talks about. For some, this may look like beginning to invest 10 minutes a day reading the Bible. We encourage this. Some of us are still not. It's not one of our daily practices. And we want to be a church where this is 100% true. Not just 60% true or 90%. We, everyone, every one of us is spending some time um, in God's word, trying to understand what it means and then how to live it out. Uh, that's a practice of uh, the discipline of engagement. Some of you would want to perhaps put your phone in airplane mode in the evening for an hour or something like that so that you can be more engaged with the people around you. That would be a spirit, a discipline of um, abstinence. This practice of doing this is, leads to, over time, you 
developing a richer, a richer love for God, a richer love for God, and also a freedom from being trapped in old patterns. This is what happens, uh, and this is what the Spirit will do in your life. This uh, cyclical pattern of failure, judgment, deliverance, and peace that we've seen throughout this series, it was well established before these books were written. It continues today, unfortunately. It does not need to be repeated in your life or in my life. So we focus our life on God. We remember his promises. We don't lose hope in God's faithfulness. We begin incorporating holy habits into the routines of our lives that are intended over time to grow your love for God and your love for others. If you do this, if we do this, imagine, imagine the difference it would make in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Imagine this. I'm just picturing um, a bunch of happy calves. <laughs> I just think there'd be a lot more people leaping, leaping for joy because of the freedom that is theirs in Christ. We love God because he first loved us. And it's because of his love that he sent his only son, Jesus, to, to demonstrate his love for us and to free us of our sin and the destructive patterns that we were trapped in. So throughout this series which has been admittedly filled with lots of judgment and righteous anger. Even in, in Malachi 4, we see it. We have been returning as a church community to the Lord's table. So I can ask Aaron and the, and the servers and the musicians to come up at this time. We've been doing this weekly as a, as a church community, taking the Lord's, receiving the Lord's uh, uh, supper together, the bread and the juice which represent, uh, of course, his body and his shed blood. And we do this as a way to remain focused on his love, uh, to remember his promises, and renewing our hope in him as our protector, our deliverer, and our healer. This is the reason why we've been doing this every single week during this series. So once again, we get to prepare ourselves to receive this expression of God's love even as we begin to prepare ourselves to going out and sharing this love with those that we meet, with our words, and more importantly, with our actions.